It's the first half of 2004. Arthur Yamamoto is working as a senior associate at Deutsche Bank in New York City. He didn't know at the time, but his career was about to take a very sharp turn. I was part of banking for six years and the last division I was a part of was acquired uh, and they offered me a new job. I turned it down, got a huge severance and, and was going to travel the world. Two days later was interviewing and met a recruiter who had uh, got me an offer at Goldman Sachs, which I turned down. And he started to talk to me about recruiting and, and how exciting it was. And it sparked an idea. Fast forward 15 years from there, and Arthur is the VP of Talent Acquisition at a well-known unicorn in San Francisco. Welcome back to Recruiting at Scale. I'm your host, Tigran Sloyan. I'm the CEO of CodeSignal and the founder of the Go Beyond Resumes movement. And it's my absolute pleasure to host today the head of talent acquisition at Checker, Arthur Yamamoto. Arthur, welcome to Recruiting at Scale. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Maybe we can start with a quick intro just so our listeners know who you are and what you do, and we can go from there. Sure. Uh, I am Arthur Yamamoto. I'm currently the the VP of Talent at Checker. I've been at the last three years. Been in recruiting for close to 16 years now. I'm a New Yorker born and raised, started my career in banking, found my way into recruiting kind of through an odd twist and turn. I was part of banking for six years and the last division I was a part of was acquired uh, and they offered me a new job. I turned it down, got a huge severance and and was going to travel the world. Two days later, was interviewing and met a recruiter who had uh, got me an offer at Goldman Sachs, which I turned down. And he started to talk to me about recruiting and, and how exciting it was. And it sparked an idea for me. And I knew nothing about recruiting. Uh, asked a bunch of quants who I knew were really bright and asked them who was a good recruiting firm. They pointed me to a boutique firm called Grady Levkov. Didn't know anyone there, but I cold called them. I told them I know nothing about <laughs> recruiting. That would have gotten you the job, you know, somebody yeah. called calling to get a job. <laughs> yeah, I said, I know nothing about recruiting, but I have a huge Rolodex. I'm interested in recruiting. And the agreement we came to was that I give it three months. And if it didn't work out, that I would give them the exclusive to find me a new job. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. So they they must have been confident that they can find you another job. <laughs> yeah, they hedged their bets for sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, ended up there for eight years and, and started my career there. So started as a recruiter, moved up to wow. uh, a senior recruiter, to a manager, to a director, to a VP. Uh, I was running about half the firm when I decided to move in-house. Yeah. That's crazy though. Like why that firm, right? Because it's a, like, as you said, it's a, it's a boutique firm and like, like you must have really wanted or had a hunch that like, this is going to be a great opportunity to like cold, cold them. Plus when you're career switching, right? That's not, yeah, a, yeah. it's very unusual. So I'm curious, what was it that got you drawn to that firm so much? Again, it, it was the fact that a, a lot of people who were much smarter than I was really just felt highly about them and, and how they were kind of on the bleeding edge and, and understood the trends in, mm-hmm. in finance and financial technology. So they were a pure financial recruiting firm. They started recruiting for high, high frequency trading and algorithm driven trading before anyone else really was doing it. And they got out of that and moved to pure tech before the market disappeared and crashed. Uh, and so they've, they've just been really really good on on staying on top of the market, having the right connections and, and pivoting when the time was right. And I just felt a, a really strong connection with the two founding partners when I interviewed with them. And yeah, it was an interesting process and, and they really kind of taught me everything about recruiting 
uh, initially. Yeah. yeah. What made you feel like you were ready to go in-house? Because it's a very different world, right? Yeah. So uh, I had a good friend who's still uh, here in the Bay Area. He's at Salesforce now, but he was the SVP of, of customer success uh, at a startup. And each year I would try to get him to come back to New York and tell him, <laughs> you know, hey, let's give up all this startup nonsense. We'll get you into, you know, Goldman or a, or a high frequency hedge fund and you'll make some right. real money. Right. And each year I would call him and he said, ah, I'm going to give it another year. And that year that I called him, it was late 2011. He turned around and said, this company is really taking off. We're going to build an internal recruiting function. What do you think about coming out here and, and joining us? So he got you yeah. <laughs> instead of you getting him. That. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was, I was literally out in the Bay area for a wedding. Uh, my wife and I were having lunch at the ferry building and said, what if it, we lived here one day? And a month later he made me this offer and the office was on Spear street with a view of the ferry building. So it just felt like kismet. And so, yeah. So joined them as the first recruiter, did everything soup to nuts there. Uh, no coordinator, no HR, just did everything on my own. Did the company take off? It was about 90 employees. I hired about 110 the first 10 months. Wow. And then the founders decided to sell the company. Okay. And so uh, it was it was tough for a lot of people who were there for a long time. But for me, it was amazing. Uh, I was there for a year. The acquiring company accelerated all my options and just paid everything out lump sum. That's best you can best, best yeah. exit you can ask for. Yeah. So so first first startup, first exit a year in. And it was a great experience for me. It was a good learning experience. From there, I got introduced to Mike Stoppelman, who's now an angel investor, but was the VP of engineering at Yelp. Yeah, and is yeah I actually this... know Mike. I oh, didn't you know Mike, know that. yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so um, Mike's old roommate referred me to him. Obviously, he's Jeremy, the CEO's younger brother. So he's an yep. important person in, in kind of the history of Yelp. And he was looking for someone to lead industry recruiting. Yelp's engineering team was fairly junior, all new grads, and they wanted to start bringing in more senior people. And he wanted to build out a industry recruiting team to do that. They had an established university recruiting team, but not really a team dedicated to bring in experienced hires. Uh, and so I built out that team. It was probably like 85% junior folks when I got there with the 60 engineers that were there. Hmm. Um, when I was there for a little over two years, we grew engineering to a little over 500, probably 65% of the, the staff having more than three years of experience. Did a lot of branding work. Uh, we went from 30,000 inbound resumes a year and uh, just on the engineering side to over 300,000. Oh, wow. Talk about 10x, 10xing yeah. the <laughs> marketing aspect of it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was almost too much, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you turned up the dial too much, but it was it was a amazing learning experience there as well and understood the engineering perspective. What was the key thing that actually, I'm curious, because there is a lot of talk about, you know, marketing and talent branding in general, but like from like 30K to 300K applicants, like what made the biggest difference in terms of talent branding? Honestly, it wasn't just talent branding, it was, accelerating the engineering brand, right? Mm. And so, you know, a few years back, people would just think of Yelp as the review site, right? Right, And it was a conscious effort by the recruiting team, by engineering leaderships, by Mike, to make sure that people understood that the problems to be solved there were much more complex than that. And so it was everything from ensuring that we had an engineer who was leading our blog post cadence so that there was sure. new blog posts every month, Mm -hmm. uh, that we're pushing everything that we did on open source was getting publicity. We had a call to speakers so that any major conference that we could get a speaker at, we had speakers at. 
Sure. And really just making sure that people understood that it wasn't just a website that did reviews, but this was a company that had petabytes and petabytes of local business data. And right. it was really an intense data company. Uh, and so the manipulation of that data, how to draw insights from it was really complex problems and exciting stuff to have. And then there were some key tentpole hires that we made that attracted a lot of great talent as well. Yeah. And that's really interesting, right? Because like uh, the, the common pattern that I'm noticing in everything you've described, it's a very close partnership with engineering to kind of drive the visibility of what they work on and like using the engineering team as one of the core pillars of attracting and being becoming more visible to other engineers. Because a lot of the times recruiting orgs try to do this by just solely relying on their own resources, which I feel like almost never works. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the par- partnership is key, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, everyone has perks. Everyone's right. got snacks. Everyone has a nice office. I mean, yeah. it matters less, much less now. Right. <laughs> and so unless you're Google or Facebook, you're not going to win the wars of most perks and laundry services and things like that. So what what really matters to people and, and what, what you figure matters to most people is career growth. But what I've really known to be true over the course of my career is for, for engineers, they want to work on meaningful, complex projects and want to solve complex projects. And so if there are genuinely complex problems to solve, you want to make sure you highlight that and people understand what those problems are. And they're not always just apparent in the product itself, right? So, so it's just working to highlight those things. That makes sense. Well, now you're a checker and I know... Uh, both the company and you are very passionate about this idea of fair chance hiring. So maybe we can just kind of do a quick intro of what is fair chance hiring, because that's not something that everybody knows and understands. And then we can dive in from there. Yeah. So really, you know, fair chance hiring for all intents and purposes is giving a fair opportunity to people who are justice impacted, meaning impacted by the criminal justice system, whether they've been arrested before Uh, whether they've served time before, but ensuring that anyone who served their time and has shown right signs of rehabilitation deserves a fair chance to to make a living. And and so, you know, there are efforts across now about 38 states on Ban the Box initiatives. And so Ban the Box is really just an initiative to remove that question on employment applications that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Right. So so it's a literally in the application form, what you're saying for probably most jobs. Yeah. You're, it just, in, in a lot of situations, you have a checkbox that says, I, ha- I have or have not been convicted of a felony. And, it, and it's just an easy way for people to get filtered out, right? And, and for fair chance hiring for us, it just means that it doesn't mean that whatever crime you commit or, or you know, your background doesn't matter at all. Of course it matters. We're a background mm-hmm. check company. That's our business. But for us, it's balancing safety uh, and fairness, right? We want to continue to ensure safety through our background check process, but we don't want to unfairly disqualify people and exacerbate the problem that this country faces. Uh, I mean, it's a fact that uh, there's roughly about 70 million Americans who have some sort of conviction or or arrest history on their backgrounds, about one in three. That's huge. Yeah, one in three. It's like mind-boggling numbers. Yeah. And, and the biggest issue for recidivism or, or people getting back into crime, uh, the research shows, is people not having job opportunities. If you can't work, 
and you need money over the course of time, you may decide to get back into doing some sort of criminal activity, right? And so by giving people a fair opportunity, uh, you make the country a safer place. And from a recruiting perspective, you open up the funnel to the 70 million people who are justice impacted, who are being ignored and are potentially capable and qualified employees. Right. But how do you get over the bias? Because, you know, even if you sort of remove the box, right, that's sooner or later, it's going to come up, at least in the background check. I agree completely that like getting it up front is just a you're getting off of your bias foot, even if you don't disqualify from the very beginning, you're leaning the wrong way. And human brain is a strange thing. Once it starts leaning a certain way, it looks for other justifications to support the initial hypothesis and not really, it's very hard to stay objective. But even later on, I feel like most of our society has such a strong bias against someone with a criminal record that people would rarely like read into it to try to understand like what really happens. Is there any true reason? Reason to be worried, or is this just something that is safe to ignore and move forward with an offer? Yeah, and sometimes it's it matters. Sometimes it doesn't, right? And and it's case by right. case. And there's always bias in that process. And it's bigger than just that criminal conviction history, right? Because we see plenty of cases where, obviously, the justice system. There's plenty of facts that show that it it negatively biases against people of color more often. And and same thing with background checks, right? You you can have two people who both have a DUI and an HR person may decide it's okay for one person, but it's not okay for the other. Right. Uh, and there's bias involved there. And so for us, we start with really just dogfooding our own product. And, and we have a product called PAM, the Positive Adjudication Matrix. It's also been renamed as Checker Assess, but it's one of our products that we offer. And really what it is, is it replaces the traditional HR system where when a background check is run, the traditional way is you have an HR person who reviews a record uh, after the background check is completed and says, this is okay, this is not okay. What Checker Assess does is it's literally a matrix you set up beforehand and you determine job-based accessibility and and requirements, meaning for a software engineer, you can decide upfront that, hey, I don't care if they have a misdemeanor that's 10 plus years old. I don't care if they have a DUI that's five plus years old, but I care about these things. Identity theft, I care about, you know, computer hacking. And you just set up those things so that you set up beforehand and the background checks just go through this system and this matrix and it won't flag things that you don't ask to be flagged. Huh, that's very interesting. So you kind of declare up front uh, what matters, what doesn't matter. So exactly, there is less of a wiggle room on the spot to be like subconsciously, right? Being like, okay, it mattered for this person, but for not for the other person. Yeah, yeah. And so you remove some of that. Obviously, there's still going to be some crimes that, that matter and, and result in review. And, and you want to make sure that you remove the bias there as, as much as possible. Some of that is really just best practices that we suggest, and, and we call them individual assessments. So we, we give advice on doing individual assessments for background checks, meaning it's a process called uh, nature time nature. So you think about the nature of the crime, the time that's passed since the crime, and the nature of the job, and determine if it makes sense, right? And and actually doing a review uh, and access, accessing the details of a background more than just the surface things. You know, a, a quick example would be one of the things that most companies will ask for that we, that gets checked in a background check review is sex offender registries. Right. Right. If I find out that someone is on a sex offender registry list. 
honest, the natural instinct is, I don't want that person working here. Right. When you deep dive deeper into it, there are situations where there, in some states, if you get caught with public urination, so you're drunk one night, you, you pee on a wall outside, you get arrested for that. In certain states, you now have to register a, as a sex offender. As a sex offender. You That's know? crazy. And so now you might be labeled for life, right? And, and if employers don't give you a fair chance, they're, they're, they may just assume you're a pedophile or a child molester. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the definition is very, very broad, right? Yes. Like when you think about what, what gets that label. Yeah. And so, so it's really just making sure that the right situations and, and everything is assessed the right way. There's no one size fits all solution. But again, mm-hmm. it's not a program that we call guaranteed hiring for convicted felons. Right? Right. It's called fair chance hiring. It's really just giving everyone an honest, fair chance, ensuring that our job descriptions are, are fair chance friendly, that our interview process uh, for people who may be recently incarcerated and, and are given a chance isn't strictly experience-based, that we're assessing skills and qualifications. There's, there's a lot of process that goes into ensuring that you can reduce the bias and stigma as much as possible. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I've seen uh, a little bit more progress with ban the box and some of these other initiatives with getting to a fair chance hiring in like the public sector and a little bit less in the you know unicorn tech company sector and Checker is a company who's like believes in this mission strongly. I wonder how you've managed to kind of create a culture in which people do get a fair chance when applying and getting to work at Checker. Yeah, like like I said, I mean, we we gotta walk the walk, right? Not just talk yeah. the talk. It's a it's our company's mission, fair chance hiring and, and really building a better future by improving understanding of the past is, is really mm. our, our statement for the company's mission. Fair chance hiring is a component of that. It's really ensuring that the background check and our products are as fair and unbiased biased as possible, but fair chance hiring is a consequence of that, right? And so for us, like I said, we dog food our own products. We ensure that that our interview processes are fair as possible. We work with different partners who work with recently released people who've been justice impacted. We we have a lot of different fair chance sourcing partners who, who send us candidates and we actively try to bring that talent in. And so currently about 5% of our company is fair chance or justice impacted. And, and there's two components, right? There's fair chance and then there's re-entry, meaning there are folks who who we've hired who have come straight out of prison. We have engineers who learn to code in prison, who work with you know the last mile and different associations who teach people in prison how to write code, right? And, and so we have engineers who've done that as well. And it's just been incredibly rewarding for us how transparent are you in that process, right? Like, for example, if I'm going through an interview and I literally just straight count, came out of a prison like a month ago and I'm doing this interview, do you take precautions to make sure that the interview panel is not aware of it? Or do you go up very upfront about it? Because I can see both sides, right? On the one side, it's a bias. Yeah. On the other side, like it's mind-blowing that someone showed the tenacity and the persistence yeah. to learn to code while being behind bars. So I, yeah. I can see both sides. I'm curious. Yeah, I think as a general practice, we we don't share that with the interviewers to avoid bias. But it's case by case in the sense that there are folks who there there are candidates who are just open in discussing their experience and they're not approaching it with with any secrecy and they're very transparent. And it's because they acknowledge the mistakes they've made 
they acknowledge that they've grown from it and that they've changed uh, as a person. It's, you know, it's not someone who's stolen a car, robbed the bank and said, I don't regret it at all. I right. do it again, right? It's generally right. someone who who said I've made a huge mistake and I've served my time and and I'm I'm ready to move forward with my life. And uh, sometimes those people are very transparent about it. But what we do work on is is actively coaching our interviewers to ask the right questions and give people opportunities, whether they're fair chance, fair chance or not, to speak about experiences that are relevant to the skills and competencies that matter, not just direct work experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if it's project management or, or collaborative nature that that's important, that there's different ways to express that experience. If there's different ways to express tenacity, that's not a coding project or, you know, uh, a business review project or whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, that's what we work on is ensuring that the process is fair, not just for for justice impacted folks, but for everybody. Right. And so uh, so that's the work that goes into it for us. And like I said, there there's no mandate that says we have to hire these people, you know, whoever they are, whether they're fair chance or not. It's just, let's make sure the interview processes are fair, uh, that we're giving people the the right opportunity to express their experience, and then we'll hire the best person from there. Right. Absolutely. And where do you think the industry is going as a whole, right? Like what can the wider industry do to be better at this? Because I feel like one, there is lack of education and lack of understanding overall, right? There's no, you don't go to school for recruiting, right? Uh, most people learn on the job and it's yep. a very imperfect curriculum in most cases, but what can the industry do as a whole to to get better at this? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you have to want to do it first and foremost as a company. You have right. to have commitment from your leadership to want to do it. And we're seeing a lot of that from different companies. You know, Slack uh, has a pretty established fair chance hiring program. Mm-hmm. One of the leaders uh, outside of tech, but just in general in the fair chance space is Dave's Killer Bread Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from making great bread, they're, they're actually like thought leaders in the fair chance space. And, and we're doing our part as well. Actually, we have a fair chance ebook, a uh, hiring ebook coming out in October that we'll be releasing as well that that really just gives people the playbook on you know how to think about fair chance hiring what the right processes and and a, a slew of resources on on getting set up to do that but but more than anything the pitch for us as, as recruiters and, and recruiting leaders is for any occupation tech or non-tech there's a lot of competition out there right, right? And, and for recruiters if Anything you can do to, to widen the funnel of Candace that you can uh, look at is going to be a positive. And, and when you think about more of the, the high churn jobs, whether it's you know manufacturing or, or on-demand gig economy stuff, you want to make sure that you're keeping the funnel as wide as possible. Uh, so that you can get these roles filled, right? And and so balancing that with the safety and the compliance piece is where our checker as a background check provider comes in. But you know the commitment as a company to to do the right thing for the country for people and and to see the ROI of of a wider funnel is is usually enough of a sell to get it done. Yeah, yeah. And there is a long way to go. And especially in Silicon Valley, there is a mentality around like even pedigree, right? Like even getting people over the pedigree hump where uh, if you didn't go to a top tier school or you haven't worked at a well-known company, that's already challenging. So we definitely have a 
long way to go. But as you said, competition is getting more and more intense and any way you can find to widen the funnel and hire qualified people because at the end of the day, it's who's qualified to perform the job. And if you can get over the biases that make you believe that certain people can, certain others can't, it's just going to make your job easier. Yeah. And, and like I said, the ROI is just... It's clear, right? Uh, I mean, there, there's plenty of research that shows the the country alone loses somewhere in the neighborhood of like $80 billion in GDP by keeping people who've been justice impacted out of work, right? Mm-hmm. And so it hurts the economy. It hurts the economy, right? And and I can just tell you from our experience with our, our 5% fair chance talent, it's been as high as 7%. When, when we think about that talent, overall, the retention rate for those folks is higher than our normal employment population. Right. A third have been promoted in the first 12 months. Nice. And, and you know, especially for a, a product like ours, it's a background check product and it directly impacts justice impacted people. To get that perspective of someone who's been impacted by the system is is key for the product. So it's just been incredibly rewarding. And, and uh, you know, without outing people, I mean, we have folks who are amazing checkers and, and do amazing work for us who've been promoted and they came out of prison serving 30 years for murder, right? And and so it's that's, just... That's phenomenal, right? Yeah. Like it's... Uh, you have to really have the, the confidence in what you're preaching to, like go ahead with a lot of clarity and make that higher and to see it actually work out as you said they've been promoted it's it's phenomenal yeah yeah and it, it's just you know when you have this population of folks who've been marginalized and and not getting an opportunity and you give them that opportunity and give them chances to grow they don't only reward you with their hard work and and commitment but like i said the retention is there they you know those folks don't leave because another company has you know better free lunch or or <laughs> you know yeah open bar on Friday or whatever it is. You right, know, I mean, right. they, they're here because they genuinely appreciate the work you did for them and they're going to give you their best. And in a tech world where we face a lot of entitlement uh, yep. and a lot of job hopping around, it, it's just amazing to see people who are like really just dedicated to a company and, and, and really want to grow and learn and do and advance their life. You know, so yeah. It's just, it's, it seems like a no brainer for me, but I understand kind of the stigma that comes with it. And, and that's really our goal is to reduce that stigma and get people to understand that it's not just charity work that you're doing by it. it there's genuine ROI as a business that you're going to get out of it. Right. right. And so that's key. you shouldn't do it because you feel bad for people. You should do it because it's the right thing to do for your business and you'll see the benefits from it. And that's a key element to understand because kind of getting people to do the right thing just for, from the societal perspective is it only gets you so far but uh, understanding that this is what's right for the business is going to be a key element for making that change well i love it i think this is a great spot to end it on it i've learned a lot and i'm sure our listeners will learn a lot too so i appreciate the time thank you so much arthur keep doing what you're doing i think it's phenomenal yeah thank you so much for having me and uh you know excited to get connected with you again thanks awesome thank you take care Thank you for listening. Go to recruitingatscale.com to find more episodes and make sure to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.